I'm Holiday. I'm Tarrant. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Over there. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warmth? Picture it. Sicily. 1922. Hi, folks. Welcome to Killer's Culture Nutjobs 2.0. My name is always your host, the very much Dark Sky Day. And joining me on this merry adventure is Monica. Good afternoon. Again, we record this in the afternoon because, uh, well, this is actually our second take at this because somehow when we recorded this before, you couldn't hear me. Well, I said that was an improvement, so just leave it as it was. Yeah, <laughs> but some of my, I, if I remember right, I had some really good jokes in this one and I couldn't hear them. Yeah, it was a good one. That's what I was like. <sighs> right. Well, it was a good one, but when I go back to, um, this one, I'm, I'm hoping that the, uh, the audio picks up better. Yeah, plus it was like the longer one, too. So I was like, oh, of course it's, you know, part two and not part three. And then I'm like, oh, my, what happened with part three? I'm like, part three. <laughs> but then part three was fine, which yeah, doesn't make much sense. Fine. Yeah, it was weird. Part and three was fine. It was just part two guests. Yeah, and wanted to make sure didn't have two weeks in between. So we're doing this for you people out there. Yes, we love you. Okay, we're gonna go back to part two of Charlie Manson. Charlie just got released from prison. Uh, I'm spacing on the name right now. I wanna say it was Terminal Island. Charlie's been in so many prisons, I lose track of which ones he was in. I'm sure he probably lost track too. <laughs> Right. It's like the uh, like the other day I had on the beginning of uh, I was watching Little House on the Prairie. No judgment here. <laughs> We're a judgment-free zone. Hey, I, I, I have a working theory about this show that would have made it a hell of a lot better, but I'll save it for another show. I'll save it for the bloody benders, okay? I'll, I'll save it for okay. Yeah, that'll be, that'll, at least they'll be the tie-in, too. So. Right. That's why I'm going to save my working theory for the bloody benders episode. But Oh, and Ingalls, like, Laura Ingalls tried to, like, tie in, too, with the Little House book. So, yeah, they'll be perfect. Right. In, uh, in the opening lines of the, the first episode, um, little Melissa Gilbert, her narration was something like, if I had a remembrance book, I'd write down this day. And, and I'm, I'm, well, I'm sure Charlie had a, a diary. He could have probably told you what prisons he was in at what time, and which ones he escaped from. And, and oh my. was trying to change up the uh, spirit of Houdini when he was escaping. Yeah, I think I actually have on my the Kindle, the Manson, his own words. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's again. Yeah, I was gonna like read that like on a plane. This is when Kindle comes in handy. I'm, like, right. instead of taking like you know fifty books with me, I've just got the Kindle. So. I I still have my note, but I I kind of transformed it into um. I'm trying to get my role playing group back together, so I I've actually stored some guides on there that I picked up online. <coughs> Dork. <laughs> it's just like reminding me back of high school. <laughs> okay, so back to Charlie and progressing for my dirtiness. <laughs> Charlie came out of prison to a world in the middle of a cultural revolution. Children of the World War II veterans began to rebel against the morals of the older generation, just like 
every generation's done. So far, Gen X holds the title. Yeah, you. Yeah. No, I'm a Zenial. I'm that like micro generation. Yeah, I'm Gen X, baby. Yep. We were built for the pandemic. Uh huh. So there was something the other day. It was some guy wrote, "I don't want to fight." You no, know, Gen Xers, man, those guys were ironing their clothes at three years old. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're the original latchkey kids. Yeah, we are. Uh huh. And I, I was one. Yeah, so there you go. Gen X. I'm, I'm going to give a quick shout out to all my Gen Xers out there. <laughs> like, cool people. <laughs> now, the, these children of the, uh, of the, the hippies were the children of the boomers, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so the, the baby boomers gave birth to the hippies. Hippies embraced drug and the concept of free love and protested the American involvement in Vietnam, which was really the first war that was televised every night on TV. Preachings to the family. Along was looking for, like, for his place in the world. Charlie met a sweet little 23-year-old Mary Bruner who worked at a library at the Berkeley campus. Here's Charlie. He's had a in, how to make friends and influence people. He's got some Scientology involved in it. So he sees this girl, tries his new skills out on her. Well, she fell for it. And not long after, Charlie got her in a bed and moved into her house. Lived with Mary, he began to explore the Hate Ashbury region of San Francisco. Now, as most of you know from the documentaries and everything, the hate was like, the center of the hippie world. You know, kids, and, uh, like they seen in Forrest Gump, where uh, you know, Jenny jumps into the truck, and the little VW van with everybody goes out the goes out to the hate. That's what people were doing. Yeah, I try to work Forrest Gump in whenever I can. All right. Definitely, Gen Xer. Well, yeah. I mean, when I first went to the Lincoln Memorial and I, I saw the reflection pool, mm -hmm. I stood one and went, Jenny! Jenny! <laughs> well, yeah, I'm old, but I saw that in the theater, too, so. Yeah, well, I mean, it was just something I had to do, and my girlfriend at the time just kind of, like, walked away like she didn't know me. Yeah, it's like, and how many other times has that been done over the decades now? Courtney, you know? It's like if I had nickel kind of deal. <laughs> right. Yeah, the National Park Service, like, there goes another one. Uh-huh, yep. All right, we're going to have a... All right, the guys, the guys keeping an eye on the Lincoln Memorial Day. Uh, what's your running total for uh, people, you know, and Jenny? 15? Okay. <laughs> so... Charlie started moving through the hate like a shark in the water. He found a spot in the park, began playing his guitar. He waited for the people to come to him. Now he re reinvented himself as a hippie guru, passing his knowledge of love and self-awareness to those who would listen. Most of the kids had gathered around to listen, and they really didn't hold Charlie's attention. That is, until this Cuban girl came up and Glenette Frost. I said cute because I've seen pictures of her when she was younger, and, and she was kind of cute. In a quirky kind of way. Right, she was, but I mean, so was Leslie Van Houten. You know, Leslie Van Houten, she was kind of cute too back then. Well, yeah, but like, I don't know, Lynette had this kind of, I think, yeah, honestly, I think like Lynette was more the quirky. Right. Yeah. I'm honestly sort of surprised that they let her out too. Right. I mean, honestly, like she, she didn't kill anybody either, but just the fact no, that she was still brainwashed. Right. The thing is, is like every time I hear Gerald Ford, I think of that Simpsons episode where they kind of spoofed him a little bit. Oh, well, it was George Bush too. 
same one with yeah, uh, uh-huh. with uh, HW. Yeah. Oh God, that was a great episode. Right, but it, you know, even when I was reading the Watergate book. Kept hearing him like that Simpsons voice. Yeah. All right, Homer. Um, Gerald Ford. You like there? You like Simpsons? They both fell down the or they fell up the steps together. Yeah. Him and Homer at the end. They were like both like don't. That's the sad part is like every time every time in this book they have Gerald Ford quote. That's the voice I heard. Uh huh. Oh God, that was like this has now turned into a Simpsons podcast, but I guess can't really complain about that either. Okay, Lynette was 18. She ran away from home after another argument with her parents. Lynette had a history of emotional problems with which is pretty evident if you're gonna shoot her up forward. And they had used drugs and sex to rebel against her parents. Charlie had found her sitting on a bench crying. Charlie approached her and began focusing his attention on her, telling her she was pretty and telling her things that she wanted to hear. He took her back to Mary's, and over time, Charlie started having sex with Lynette. Slowly, he brought Mary into it, and they began having threesomes, although Mary harbored some jealousy since she was Charlie's first. As the summer approached, kids from all over the country began to arrive at the Hague to be hippies. By this time, Charlie had a VW bus that he drove around. On one trip, he went to see a man he met in prison, Billy Green. Billy introduced Charlie to 19-year-old Patricia Krenwinkel. Pat had been living with her mother in the segregated South, but had recently moved to California and was living with her sister and nephew. Charlie spent the weekend working on Pat. By the end of the visit, Pat left with Charlie and she brought along her dad's credit card. In the early fall of 1967, Charlie was at a friend's house playing Shadow of Your Smile. One of those listening was 20-year-old Susan Atkins. Susan believed that Charlie was a guitar virtuoso. Charlie began to work his magic on her and she became a part of the group. Not long after Susan joined, Charlie took them to a pimp that he knew had the girls turn tricks in the brothel. This was a test who would do what Charlie asked them to do, and it would become his tactic he would use whenever they were short on money. Women fell for Charlie, but men proved harder to join his growing family. The first man who joined was Bruce Davis. Bruce wanted to be Charlie's second in command and was with the group when they moved to Los Angeles so Charlie could audition for Gary Stromberg at Universal. Stromberg was a friend of Phil Kaufman, who Charlie had met in prison. As Charlie began to play, Stromberg lost all interest in Charlie, but noticed how the girls would sway and react to the music. Stromberg decided that he liked what he heard and scheduled Charlie for a three-hour studio session. Milkshake. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> well, as long as it was like a, a nice good vanilla shake and a nice good burger, I don't care. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, agree to anything. It's like, yeah. They went to an In and Out burger. Oh. <laughs> I'm having that this week. <laughs> I'm not excited or anything. Okay. Continue. <laughs> no, I. I was just telling my mom yesterday, I, I can't eat a lot of fast food burgers anymore. I, I'm just losing my taste for them. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I usually when I go to McDonald's, I get a filet of fish. See, that's what I don't like. 
Uh, so I don't know, like, and the McRib. I can't, that too. Yeah. Disaster at the studio. Charlie met Bobby. Because I know I'm going to mess up his name. It's Bobby Boussoulil. Boussoulil. God damn it. Boussoulil. It's tradition now, apparently. <laughs> for you to mess it up and for me to go, Boussoulil. Oh my God. <laughs> He is. <laughs> Not too sorry, though, but <laughs> consider it. It's part of the show. Yeah. Uh huh. Now, this is strange because Bobby B became a true friend of Charlie. Bobby played guitar better than Charlie, although he would never say it out loud. And he knew Gary Hinman. Gary was a music teacher. And, and you know, as a music teacher, you might have uh, um, connections within the music industry. For Bobby also dealt drugs and had connections in that world. So, you know, Charlie kind of put him on a, a, a bigger pedestal than Bruce Davis. But the hate was getting crowded, so they had to find a new place to live. As I said, with the hate being crowded, you know, there was all these new gurus coming in. And Charlie was afraid that any one of these guys could steal his women. And his mouth, bitches, don't touch them. So Charlie thought about going out to the Mojave Desert, but after convincing the group that they should emulate the Beatles, because Charlie thought, you know, everybody in the 60s in some weird way formed a band and, and tried to be like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, the two big British influences at the time. But they should go out and do their own magical mystery tour. That's a good album. I like it. I know, Monica's not a Beatles fan. Yeah, yeah. Jim Croce forever. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure if Jim Croce did a did a album like Magical Mystery Tour, you'd be into it. Well, yeah, I mean. <laughs> you know, I've been listening to some of his he's, he, he's got some great tunes, man. Some? I, I think, well, the ones that I've heard. I, but... I think one of my favorites is uh, Time in a Bottle. Oh, yeah. Well, you know who you're talking to here. So you're like thin ice here a little, you know? Like, be careful what you say about, you know, Jim around me, so. <laughs> oh, I know you're not knocking him because, like, yeah, we would not be like, <laughs> be like, Monica's left the room. <laughs> I know there's been a lot more too if it wasn't for the right, plane yeah. crash that took yeah him and Maury Mulehuisen. So oh, there had some no. Nah. Yeah, that was the whole there have been like so many more years of great music from them. So right. But okay, so, we're talking about Manson here. Sorry. Right. <laughs> you know me, I can like go on and on for him, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> They all packed up in their look. I think they still have the VW bus at this point. But they loaded up the bus and they, their tour took them to the Mojave Desert, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas before they came back to LA at the end of the year. Now, in 1968, Paul Watkins became the next man to join the group. And Charlie enjoyed playing Paul against Bruce to see you know, who was going to be his number two man. Now, how how it was up. The men would work on the vehicles while the women would perform sex acts for money or go diving in dumpsters for food for the group. There was a group at the time there, I think they're called the divers. Might be wrong on the name, but these were kids who would, you know, go through the dumpsters at grocery stores and, you know, kind of find the food that was still kind of good enough to eat and they would take this food and eat it and live off of it. Now, after they had their evening meal, the group would drop LSD while Charlie preached to them. Then he orchestrated everybody in the Norgie. 
sounds as creepy as it did when I wrote it. <laughs> there was like no other way to write it, though. That's the thing. It's like any way yeah. you try to write it, it's yeah. like, yeah, nope, nope, that's okay. I'll just write it. <laughs> right. When I read it in the book, I'm like, wait, are you fucking serious? I read that line three times and I was like, who the fuck directs an orange? Yeah, it's like there's just there's no way around it. Like, I always thought orgies were like a, a spontaneous thing, you know. Well, that's I would, what the movies yeah. always. Well, yeah. <laughs> just having a nice picnic and an orgy breaks out, right? It's kind of like I was at a right, fight in a know? yeah, I was at a fight in a hockey game broke out kind of deal. <laughs> So win-win, basically. Well, <laughs> a win-win, basically, for them. At least for Dennis right. at the time. <laughs> but. Pete Davidson? Yes, it's not found on the kids section. Already. I mean, he's known Baum since like in utero. So, yeah. <laughs> so, slowly, Charlie and the family began to wear out their welcome at his house. And another thing that bothered people was Charlie's ability to push them away. Often he would show up at the Beach Boys' studio and act like he owned the place. Now, it would be nice. Dennis introduced him to Terry Melcher was a record exec, and he was Doris Day's son, right? Yeah. And so Charlie tried to get to get a record deal on that, and he just kept, you know, bothering 
Terry, you know, hey, hey man, I got some great songs. I want to play them for you. Give me a record deal. So Terry goes, okay, we'll set you up for some studio time. But the results were still the same. It was a disaster. But Charlie was not ready to admit failure, and he told the family that the engineers just didn't get his message. Well, this was enough for Dennis. Since the family began to run up a huge bill on his expense account with the Beach Boys, I think this might have been the time when uh, Brian might have been slowly losing his grip on reality. Yeah, but Brian had Brian had something. I mean, he's a genius. Don't get me wrong. Brian Wilson is, is, is a genius. He created the Beach Boys sound. But like somewhere around 2020, Pet Sounds he just started to lose his. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, I was raised on Beach Boys. That's the thing. Right. My mom played the Beach Boys for me, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I think she played, like, their greatest hits album, which is good. I mean, it's their hits, but you really got to get into, like, the B-side and the deep cuts to really, you know, hear hidden gems by different Yeah, I mean, I've same thing with like Jim. My mom would grow it up. I'd be that's all I'd be, you know, listen to was Beach Boys. So. No wonder I'm so obsessed with California, Los Angeles, right? Right, the surf music. That's where it all started. So, for those of you that don't really know, if you remember the '80s group Wilson Phillips. Well, early, early, not like well, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, Wilson Phillips. Yeah. All right. Two uh-huh. of the two of the girls are Brian's daughters. Yeah, and then she, John Phillips, the other one. Yeah, which is hello, where they got the name. <gasps> yeah, I kind of liked uh, Wendy Phillips a little bit. Yeah, I was a Wilson Wendy. Phillips fan. I liked Wendy because I have a thing for redheads. I'm sorry. Hi, my name's Scott, and I'm addicted to redheads. <laughs> Where the heck um, are we? Like, okay. <laughs> we're like slightly going off the rails, but at least we're still kind of keeping to like, you know, the basic idea of the topic. So, because right. that counts. <laughs> okay, so Dennis just decided that uh, he had to part ways with Charlie, and he moved someplace. He didn't leave a forwarding address just in case you know Charlie found him. I think at one point the, the family did find him, and they broke in and took something, and Dennis didn't realize it was them. I and there was nothing like he that Charlie left like two bullets on the counter for him yeah. too. Yeah, but yeah, Dennis was probably too stoned. Oh yeah, he was like, oh, <laughs> a squirrel brought them in. <laughs> Totally chill, dude. I like left two bullets out, so like, oh fuck it, let's go catch some weights. So after this little fiasco with Dennis Wilson, Charles Tex Watson joined the group as Charlie began to look for a new place to live. Now he sent some of the girls up to Philo, California, but you know this was a little conservative town and hippie girls just sent the wrong message. They, they gained way too much attention. So, being loyal to Charlie, Bobby V was sent up to check out the area. And Bobby V had a new girl that, you know, well, he was with, she was with Bobby V, but she joined Charlie, and this turned out to be Leslie Van Houten. So after these setbacks, Charlie decided to move the family to Spawn Ranch. And Spawn Ranch was situated deep in the Los Angeles hills. The ranch was used as a location for TV westerns, and even leaving the building standing, Charlie made a deal with George Spawn, the owner, that the family would fix the buildings in exchange for them to live there. Charlie had Lynette keep George occupied, who was nearly blind and had no idea what was going on. Out at the ranch, Charlie could keep control of the three dozen people who followed him, and the temptations of L.A. were kept at a distance. Charlie had found out from one of his members about Myers Ranch out in Death Valley. 
He moved everyone out there to keep better control, but after numerous complaints, they came back to spawn. Then the heavens opened and brought a revelation to Charlie. The <laughs> Actually, I think that's literally what happened. <laughs> you know, it, it's probably in his mind. Yeah. The clouds parted, the, the ray of sunshine came down, masked Charlie in its glow, and God said, Charlie, I have something to do. What is it, Lord? Yeah. The Beatles released the double album, White Album. What many people at the time were not aware of, the Beatles were having internal problems, which resulted in this being a double album. Everybody thought like, hey, great. They love us so much that they're doing a double album. Not that they can't agree on anything. And that's why they had the double album. Right. I think what it was, uh, I need to read more up on the Beatles, but I think when it came to the double album or the white album, I think it was like everybody wanted to get their own songs on the record. Yeah. You know, George had written some and he wanted them on the album. Ringo had some, you know, they're kind of, Reached the point where John and Paul were just like, listen, we understand you guys are the writers, but listen, we want our music. Uh huh. And also, why it was just plain white, too, because it was instead of. Well, the, the original concept was they were just mm -hmm. going to call it the Beatles. But because it was white. And they couldn't even agree on that. Uh huh. <laughs> what was the big hit off of that one? Revolution? Yeah, Revolution don't look at that. Which would explain the next part of the <laughs> script. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. So Charlie had bought the album and told his followers that this was a blueprint of what was going to happen because, you know, the Beatles had so much time to talk to Charlie by himself and, you know, send messages to him. My father said it was like hidden messages, you know. Yeah, Actually, just for him, right? Was, well, Dad told me once that the Bible was written with hidden messages and only he could decipher. I just looked at him and said, yeah, you're fucking high. He gave me a lot of money. Remember the Bible? was back in the 90s, the Bible code book? I forget the oh, title. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he gave me a ton of money. Yeah. He didn't think that part of it. Yeah, I know, right? You have been like, yep, that's my dad. Instead of, yep, that's my dad. <laughs> no, I still would have been like that, but I would have been like hiding myself a little bit more. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'm sure the, the money wouldn't have hurt, though. <laughs> no. I could went to college sooner in life. Yeah, see? So there we go. Okay. The, that will true, but yeah. It would ease the pain a little. The song Piggies was how the rich felt entitled to the world. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little piggies, life is getting worse. Blackbird was a prediction about the blacks rising. All your life. Revolution was a call to arms. Revolution. And Revolution 9 was the soundtrack. With the eventual race war being called Helter Skelter. Charlie made sure that the family understood that the Beatles meant all of this just for them, and the Beatles were on their side. In the grand scheme of things, and sorry, folks. The Book of Revelations, as preached by Charles Manson, foretold the coming of both the Beatles and Charles Manson. On January 27, 1969, the Beach Boys released 2020. Dennis liked the song from Charlie's recording session, Ceased to Exist. Pretty girl. Pretty, pretty girl. which Charlie gave permission to rework and record. The song was changed to Never Learn Not to Love.
and was the B-side to the single, Bluebirds of the Mountains. When Charlie heard the song, his rage was explosive. Not only was Charlie cut out of the whole process, but the song also stayed at 61 on the charts, making it a failure. Having a failed song on the charts was a sure sign that there would be no record deal. Charlie still held out hope for Terry Melcher, but the world was changing. With the youth protesting and riots on the rise, trying to protect themselves on how to use guns, knives, and survival skills. The goal, as Charlie explained, was when Helter Skelter started, the family would hide out in Death Valley in a cave. When the violence passed, the African-Americans would win, but they were not mentally suited to run the country. That's when Charlie and his family would reemerge from the cave and lead these people in a new golden age. When I went to edit the, the, the old one, I found ceased to exist on YouTube. Uh-huh. Charlie's actually now credited with a, with a writing credit on it. Oh, so I guess... I guess if you finally go on the... No, I'm not trying to never learn, never learn not to love. Yeah, but I mean, like, is that like on the official Beach Boys page, if they have one? I mean, because that'd be different than, like, right. finding it. No, I would no, want to literally see it, though, myself, to be honest, right. like, I'm on something. See, like, trying to copy the 2020, but I know I found Cease to Exist when I went to edit. And then I found Never Learn Not to Love, and mm-hmm. like in a little parentheses where it just says D. Wilson slash C. Man. So I'm like, who the fuck is that? He gets writing credit now. Hey, yeah. Well, that was the thing, too. That's why the Beach Boys started to go downhill because, like, the whole they were all, you know, the pop, let's go, you know, fun in the sun, driving down, right. you know, the PCH, and everybody was like, that's not cool anymore. Right. I, I want to say around maybe like 66, the music started, really started changing once the Beatles hit America. Yeah. When the British invasion mm-hmm. started. And you know, yeah. The Beatles, the Stones, the Birds. Yeah, and the Beach but Boys they, were passe. Right, because I think the new sound coming out of California was like the Mamas and the Papas. Yeah, exactly. Uh huh. You know, the Birds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you go from. Fun, fun, fun till the daddy takes the keyboard away to uh, all the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. Yeah. So when they were. Yeah. So when the Beach Boys tried to change, they're all like being sort of made fun of too. Like, oh no, the Beach Boys are trying to be like hippies too. And they couldn't. Yeah. It was like when when Vince Neil left Molly Crew, they tried to do a grunge album. I I think I kind of remember. Yeah. same thing. It was like, yeah, don't. <laughs> it was like, um, listen here, guys rock with Vince Neil. I don't want to hear Molly Kruby grunge. Get the fucker back. Mm-hmm. But yeah, by 60, 65, 66, definitely music was changing in America. You started getting more protest songs. You started getting more, you know, psychedelic with like Jefferson. Jefferson Airplane and The Grateful Dead, Slide in the Family Stone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're getting everything in one podcast today, people. Okay, I can hear you. Okay, no good. So glad. <laughs> no, no, I'm on the my cord messes up on that cage, so I gotta jiggle it around. Like, hey, I, I was looking at you. I'm like, uh, what's going on? <laughs> okay. Charlie still wanted his audition with Melcher. But in typical, you know, upper management, executive type of way, Melcher was blowing him off. Charlie would call the office, he'd show up, even went by Melcher's place on CeeLo Drive. Only to find out that Melcher and his girlfriend at the time, which was Candace Bergen. Murphy Brown! Woo! <laughs> the daughter of the great ventriloquist Edgar Bergen. Yep. Which I, I've seen like pictures of Edgar, you know, footage of Edgar Bergen doing his 
His bed, man, his lips were moving bad. But then again, he started off on radio, so no one could really tell on radio. Oh, yeah. Like, if you go back and look like, like the original Muppet movie, mm-hmm. there's a scene where he's sitting there with Charlie McCarthy, and his lips are just moving away as Charlie's talking. I'm like, dude, either you're slipping or you didn't fucking practice, man. Yeah. I have to find that now. Probably was, I bet it's probably Disney Plus or something. Um, probably something. I have it. Yeah, you're probably gonna find this strange, but I own a copy. No, right. I've got the Muppets Take Manhattan, and actually James is taking that on the plane because he loves the scene with Joe Rivers and Miss Piggy. <laughs> There's only one reason why I have the original Muppet movie, not for nostalgia reasons, uh-huh. because I love it, but some rainbow connection it. It touches my heart oh, yeah. in a special way. Uh-huh. I told my daughter when I die, that's being played at my funeral. I think I'm saying, like, don't fear the Reaper. <laughs> back to back, right? You're right. Don't fear the Reaper. Throw in Alice Cooper's I Love the Dead while you're at it. Uh-huh. I'm going to do the, with the meme, like the Jack in the Box. <laughs> oh, that would be so cool. Like, oh my god. I hire someone to stand as a the Grim Reaper in the corner oh, of yeah. my uh my funeral. Uh-huh. Alex gave me his express word that yes, Dad, I'll I'll find someone to do that for mm-hmm. please do sign. Just <laughs> point to random people in the audience uh-huh. right now. Now who's living in the funeral drive Actress Sharon Tate and her director husband, Roman Polanski. They had occupied the place now. And she was, at this point, she was what? Eight months pregnant? Well, like around that, yeah, the April time. Well, no, she was due in August. So, probably, but six months or something, around five, six months pregnant. She was probably showing. Yeah. Uh huh. She was, they were living there now. Now, on April 19th, the police raided the ranch on a tip. Several of the girls was arrested, but they were later released. Um, You know, how it gets, you know, something wasn't signed right or there wasn't enough evidence, so. Tex was arrested a few days later for being under the influence. He spent the night in jail, and when he got out, he was mean. Charlie had uses for a meaner text. He liked it. Probably had himself a little jump going on at that point. Well, Harry Melcher finally got back with Charlie, and he said he would come out on May 18th. Now, this was it, man. Charlie was in his dream. He was happy. Kind of like a Christmas, you know, like a kid on Christmas morning. You run downstairs, and there's all the presents on the tree. The milk cookies left out for Santa are gone. But yet, for some reason, there's a bottle of whiskey laying near the milk and cookies, so you don't know where that came from. Santa needed something to stay warm on the trip. The family put on a show. Now, after the audition, you know, Charlie and Terry are talking. He goes, hey, Charlie, I know this guy. He's got a portable studio. We'll come out here and we'll record you and you know, stop around. Maybe someone will pick up, you know, someone will like what you're saying. So Charlie went back in front of the family, like, I got the deal, folks. It was like success. Well, the thing is, is Terry really didn't think Charlie was that good. I mean, there were thousands of guys on the streets of LA who looked like Charlie, played like Charlie, sounded like Charlie. It was it was a dime, you know, it was a dime a dozen. And also, you know, right around this time as we said before, music was changing. So on June sixth, Terry and his buddy Mike Deasy came out to the ranch. Well, you know, they're having some snacks up and someone kind of slipped some LSD into a brownie at Mike gate. He had a bad trip. Now this ended the chance for Charlie to record his songs. So, you know, being a nice guy, Charlie helped Terry get Mike into the band. 
Charlie off the side. He put his arm around and goes, listen here, Charlie. This was not what Charlie expected, but in his twisted worldview, he wanted to tell the he needed to tell the family something. So Charlie spun the story that Terry betrayed them, just like the Bible and the Beatles predicted. This was a sign that Helter Skelter was coming. Charlie had taught the family how to break into places and leave no trace. They called creepy crawling. Now he instructed the family to steal things when they went on their crawls. Actually, the creepy crawls is like they would like change the like pictures on the walls. Right. They knock them to, like or put a chair on the table, kind of so. Right. You know, that was that. Shit. Yeah, that's where the creepy part came in. I think the crawl was because it, you know they, they were like dressed in black and yeah, uh huh, you know, low to the ground army style. And, I have to wonder, you know, if, when they were doing this, if any of them ever farted in the houses. <laughs> of all the questions having to do with this case yeah. over the years, I've yeah, we bring up the important questions here, folks. <laughs> I mean, I. You know, sometimes I'm at work and I'm thinking about this. I'm like, when they're creepy crawling, did anybody work one? You know, was it a silent? It was like, uh, uh, you know, it's like, you know, Jonestown. They found 900 people dead on the ground. How many of them shit themselves? True. <laughs> when people get executed, their bowels evacuate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 900 dead people in there. I'm not worried about the smell of the dead bodies. I'm not worried about the smell of the shit coming out of their pants. Scott Klonowski, the most sensitive of podcasters. Hey. <laughs> that's a tough question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hard hit, you know. Next on Dateline. Next yeah. on uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that's more raw, though. Oh. Right. After the mess with Char Terry, Charlie had discovered where he lived and sent a crew there to rob him. Unfortunately for the family, Terry never linked the crime to them. So once he was away from the ranch, he never thought about Charlie again. Until everything else went down. But. Right. Well, I'm, I'm sitting there, I was typing up the, the script for the, the trial, and Terry was brought into, I might have to put that into the script. With, with Terry's testimony. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. That would be good. Oh, uh, yeah. No. Charlie was afraid of losing people after the loss of the record deal. He needed to do something drastic. So he decided he could jumpstart Helter Skelter. Calling Tex into a meeting, they came up with a plan to get some money. The idea was to tell a buyer they had 25 kilos of prime weed. They would get the money and run. Well, from the beginning, the plan fell apart. Texas girlfriend, Luella, brought in a buyer named Bernard Crow, AKA Lots of Papa. Lots of Papa. Oh, yeah. Very memorable. He put up the money, but kept Luella until the weed arrived. The thing is, there was no weed to begin with. Tex brought the money to Charlie, and Lots of Papa called out to the ranch. Charlie stuck with the story that he had not seen Tex. Lots of Papa said he would kill Luella if he didn't get the money and the weed. Charlie had never cared for Luella, so not much of a threat there. Lots of Papa said he was a panther, and if he didn't get the money or the weed, the panthers would show up. Lots of Papa also lied and was never a panther, but Charlie didn't know that. Charlie agreed to meet at Lots of Papa's house. Charlie arrived and he brought along a gun. He had brought some of the family with him and wanted T.J. Wallerman to kill Lots of Papa. Well, T.J. was scared, so Charlie took the gun and shot Lots of Papa. They escaped back to the ranch and T.J. left the group. I would too. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I can't wait to get to the trial. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
James, how much fun it was to go to the rental store and pick out a movie because he was like flipping through. He was like, How is that fun? Instead of just like sitting in front of the TV, flipping out, trying to decide what to watch. I'm like, It just was. I was like, It was great. It's like, Oh, yeah. I'm like, Yeah, it was awesome. I'm like, so instead of just flipping through your remote control here. Wait. Right. So, but Charlie was now afraid that the Panthers would show up. He posted guards around the ranch. And when there was an increased number of African-Americans on the tours, Charlie would tell the family that they were Panthers checking out their security. People kept defecting as Charlie kept ramping up the helter-skelter talks. So I guess the slightly less crazy people were like, yeah, this is a bit too much for me. You know, the, the Sailor ones kind of got cold from the herd. Yeah. Like, good for them. <laughs> that was a lucky break. Right. And I'm pretty sure that once, like, the murders and everything went down, those that escaped were like, holy shit, man, that could have been us. Uh-huh. Oh, I got a bullet on that one. Yeah. Well, like, it's like... Who's this guy, Jim Jones? He sounds good. <laughs> Oh, I hope that this doesn't get screwed up just for that joke alone. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. I like that one. <laughs> so he asked Bobby B to get his girl Gypsy. <laughs> well, a little like still crazy, but a little less dangerous crazy. Yeah, well, he's Los Angeles too, so yeah, he's a little bit closer. <laughs> Just a quick drive down the road. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, Bobby B asked, like, Charlie asked Bobby B to get his girl Gypsy to recruit some new people. So it was during this time that Linda Kasabian came into the group. Death Valley was a place to go for now, and the family needed money. The plan was to rob Gary Hinman. On Friday, July 25th, Bobby, Mary, and Susan went to Gary's house. Bobby demanded $1,000, but Gary didn't have it. Mary had a gun placed on Gary, and he tried to wrestle it away. Bobby got the gun and gained control of the situation. Bobby began to beat Gary until he signed over two of his cars. Bobby made a call to Charlie, who showed up a few minutes later. 
Charlie brought a sword he always carried around and almost cut off Gary's left ear. Charlie left, leaving Bobby and the girls to torture Gary. During the torture, Gary said he would call the police. Bobby called Charlie and was told, you know what to do. Bobby stabbed Gary numerous times, killing him. As Gary laid there dying, Bobby took a towel and used Gary's blood to write political piggy on the wall. And, you know, Gary said he was going to call the cops on, you know, Bobby being a girl. Yeah. I wonder if he used the same voice that kids do. I'm going to call my mommy. Yeah. I'm going to call the police on you. What's well, like also, he was Buddhist. I also um, read that he was, you know, saying the Buddhist prayer while, you know, he was dying too. Right. It's like. on Gary's death. Bobby is, you know, see, Charlie wanted to keep everything quiet about what happened to Gary. But Bobby and Susan started blaming anybody who was around. Now remember that, because he was going to be the in all of this, all right? So on July 31st, some of Gary's friends came by for a visit, and they found him dead. The L.A. County Sheriff's Department came in since it was in their jurisdiction. They collected evidence. Killers were sloppy in their cleanup efforts, and the police found a fingerprint. Now, his friends pointed out that two of his cars were missing, so the police put out an APB for the cars. Well, two days later, uh, two days later, shit. Two days later, the police picked up dumbass Bobby B for driving the stolen Fiat. See, folks, with the money. If someone signs over their car to you when you're torturing them, don't fucking drive them. Gonna get caught. Also, a lesson from oh my god, I feel bad from the case with the Power Ranger. The case I going yeah, that's another one we should do. Sort of the same thing. Yeah. So anyway, continue. Sorry about that interruption. <laughs> And the police found the murder weapon. So what they did, instead of like disposing it like they should have done, they tucked it up in the wheel well of the Fiat. The police found it. Now they compared it. Some print that they found at the scene, and guess what? It was Bobby B. So Bobby was arrested. Oh wait, sorry, you have to turn pages. Bobby made a phone call to Charlie, promising not to rat him out. Now, normally in this situation, you know, Charlie's instincts would be to run. Well, in this case, he decided, hey, man, I'm going to go to the Pacific Northwest, man. I'm going to start over. But here's the problem, man. I spent two years building this group, and I got some oil in it with me. But the problem is, right now, things are spinning out of control. Now, Squeaky, that's Lynette for those of you who don't know. He found that two of the girls were arrested for using stolen credit cards, and the bail was $600. What would it be today? They're like... You're right. Yeah. Well, well basically, it would be over $1,000. So, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Original part three. Yeah, you'll hear the original audio for part three. I, I listened to it. You can hear me, hear Monica. It, it, 
it turned out good. This is part two got screwed up. For whatever reason, because they literally seemed to be, everything was the same. So for whatever reason. Right. It's like I Charlie got saying, into I, it. <laughs> right. As I keep saying, we need a Charlie Brunkle in my life. No, I'm saying like Charlie Manson got into, you know, and screwed oh, things right. up. Charlie yeah. Uh-huh. Messed, up my, uh, messed up my recording. Yeah. Apparently he likes me, know. so. <laughs> well, apparently, I mean, I'm here at my mom's house, which was my grandma's house. And this house is haunted. Yeah, my grandpa died in the house. My grandma died in the house. My mom's boyfriend died in the house. Your hopes and dreams died in the house. No, that's two blocks old. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Childhood home where my hopes and dreams died. Then they were briefly resurrected and then they were stomped again by a uh, being divorced woman with a nasty child. And then resurrected again. And dashed again. But now, hey, at least you got somebody else to have half carry the load here now. So. Instead of going half like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> not naming names or anything here. <laughs> someone who's prettier, someone who's smarter, someone who understands my humor. I can add some. Been reading this stuff for 30 plus years now. So, so now that's something. Yeah, like with my grandfather. Like, say, like, why would you want to read about him? Like, well, pop up in 30-some years, I'm going to be doing a, basically, for your generation, a radio show, and I'll need to know this information. So that's why I'm reading about him now. <laughs> be known as the Gracie Allen of podcasting, Grandpa. Yeah, so that's why I was, like, really wondering, like, what he would think. You know, doing this, you know. I've often, I've often compared the podcasting to like, you know, old time radio. Well, it's a little bit of vaudeville too. Yeah, I mean, that's basically if I ha- literally, yeah, if I had to explain it to them, if they, you know, came back, first of all, I'd be like, um, huh, and then I'd be explaining, you know, podcast to them, and that's basically the easiest oh, way to explain it. Like, it's old radio. Yeah. I mean, you set up your little studio in your house. Mm-hmm. You have your script. You know, you make your jokes. I want a little music, little sound effects here and there. And it is basically old time radio. Yeah. So, yeah, it just it makes me laugh. Yeah, but I mean, in a sense, as old time radio, we. Reach a worldwide audience where they only, you know, broadcasting at the time. You know, worldwide. You're funny. <laughs> there comes my Gracie Allen part, right? Like, well, I mean, honestly, you know, this particular show's got listeners in, in England and Ireland and Australia, so you know. Because of how the technology has evolved, we do reach a world. Oh, audience. well, yeah. Yeah, I'm just messing with you. But yeah, technically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Remember those episodes of MASH where you know, Radar would have to call back to the stage and he had to go through, like, you know, Sparky and six other operators just to get, you know, say, Illinois. I was more Nightcore. We hear that, like, I'm the generation of when you would hear the MASH theme song starting, it'd be like, okay, time to go to bed. Mine too, but I always got to watch them in the summer. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't really have as much interest, but. But I, yeah. I didn't watch Nightcore growing up. Oh, I think I was three when MASH went off the air. So. Um, I don't know how old I was more for Yeah, well, me and my best friend met Harry Anderson. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. A little shout out to Chrissy. <laughs> hey, Chrissy. I know, right? It's like, see, it's pictures like that. Yeah. Marsha. Marsha. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Mole just because he did the voice of my favorite Batman villain in the animated series. Two-Face. Yeah. Tommy Lee Jones is my Two-Face, so. <laughs> Never, like, didn't we have a discussion about this about, like, before we recorded about people going off on, like, tangents, like, before. For. But hey, at least we finished the show. It's not like, yeah, we did the show. It's not like, you know, 10 minutes. Yeah, so now we, this is our time. Now we tangent. Yeah, uh huh. So that's the difference. Tangent after. So, but. So now it's the awkward silence part of the show. <laughs> I'm getting ready to, to wrap it up here. Yeah. So. Uh, I'm work, I'm, we're working to get on Apple so we can reach a wider audience, but we're on Podbean. Yeah, I think what CastBox, too. Let's try. CastBox, yeah, there. I like it. I like the way CastBox is set up. Right. Well, just make sure when you type in the name of the show, you, you put in the 2.0 at the end. Because you know, I've had to explain it to a few people, you know, including me. <laughs> That's what I said, Abby. I'm like, like, here's like the link for my Facebook page. I was like, I'm not quite sure how to send you the link without being like, I can't find it. So here, just here's the link from my Facebook page, and there it is. So much easier. <laughs> Catch you later, folks. Oh, sorry, that's the other part. Right. Darn, Gracie. I'm Monica. Catch you later, folks. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night, and God bless you.